Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 34. With me this time is English professor at St. Cloud State in Minnesota and video producer of Matt Chat on YouTube, Matt Barton. Hello, Eric. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on. I was wondering, could we start with your background? Because before, I believe before you started the Matt Chat like, video series, you actually wrote a book called Desktop and Dungeons, The History of Computer Role-Playing Games. Yeah, I was. Uh, I started off in this trajectory, I guess, back in, I guess it must have been about 15 years ago or so. I had a blog called Armchair Arcade uh, that we started and did some articles for that. And that eventually morphed into a history of computer role-playing games for Gama Sutra. And then uh, somebody at Gama Sutra, I guess uh, some book publishers had talked to them, uh, asked if they had any anybody that would be willing to write a book on uh, the history of games. And, of course, since I'd been doing that one about role-playing games, they mentioned me. So that was the my first book, Dungeons and Desktops, basically morphed out of those blogs that I had been doing. And then after that, uh, I did another book with uh, some, a guy from uh, Armchair Arcade called Vintage Games. And that actually got turned into a movie, if you can believe that, uh, called Gameplay, a documentary film. And then a couple of other books related to that. And then my latest project is actually Vintage Games 2.0, which is a second edition, basically a total rewrite of that Vintage Games book. And where like this this interest in history regarding the game medium come from? I guess it's... I was thinking about this earlier. I thought you might ask something like this. Uh, I guess for me it would be like... As somebody who really, uh, really liked uh, rock music, learning more about the bands, or you know, somebody who really liked uh, football, learning about their teams, right? I mean, you play the games, but you don't really know anything about the people that made them or how they made them. Uh, so I got sort of curious about that, and I was listening to another podcast one time named Retro Gaming Radio, and they had, you ever play a game called Forbidden Forest? No, I can't say that I have. Uh, what about one called Pitfall? I have not had the pleasure. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, they were. I played Pitfall as a kid, and the, they brought David Crane on, who had designed that game uh, for Activision back in the day. And it was really fascinating to, to hear him talk about it, because basically for him, it was just a business. You know, he didn't really have any personal connection to any of his, any of his creations. You know, the question came up about all these sort of spinoff series that had been made about Pitfall. And, did that upset him in any way? And he was basically saying, no, that's fine. It's just a product. <laughs> and so I was just kind of flabbergasted by this. And I was like, you know, surely not all video game designers have that kind of mentality. And, you know, and sure enough, it was, it seems he's kind of a, kind of rare. But anyway, it's just been kind of fascinating to me getting to meet all these uh, people that did it. And plus just thinking about the technology too and the, the impact that it's had on our culture and society. There's, I think it's easy for us, I guess, since we've kind of been born. Uh, how how old are you, Eric? Do you mind my my ask? Twenty nine. So, would you say that video games have always been part of your your life? Not as like a central figure, but as I think back on my early years, it's like there's always like that one thing in the corner, mm -hmm. like it's always like been there, but it had never like took central focus until I guess like the last decade or so. Yeah, I think it's easy for people to uh, not to appreciate it because it's something that's happening now. Uh, whereas I think maybe 50 to 100 years from now, uh, my guess is when people look back at this time, they'll see, wow, these video games were a huge thing. Now, I compare it to, say, the uh, tragedies and comedies in ancient Greece, those sort of early plays that they had uh, back then. And probably back then it didn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Uh, of course, now we we still study those 
comedies and tragedies today and call it you know, literature. So I think certain, not maybe not all video games, but I think there's probably video games being made today that people will still be playing and talking about, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 100 years from now. And I guess that's a good place to actually move into your video channel, Matt Chat. What was the inspiration to actually move into that new format from text? Well, I guess it was just kind of a, I guess my personality, I always want to try something new. If I'm bad at something, I want to <laughs> get better at it, I guess. And so I'd done a lot of writing, you know, I'd kind of been there, done that. I wanted to try something else. At the time, YouTube was kind of evolving into this, uh, I don't know what to call it exactly, kind of a group. It's kind of like a discussion board almost, but in video format. People were making all these response videos to each other. And I got sort of following some of those guys doing, uh, talking about their video game collections and this kind of thing. So anyway, I realized there was a pretty uh, sizable community growing on YouTube of gamers, basically 30 to 40-something-year-old gamers that were kind of getting this partly nostalgic and wanted to talk about their, their hobby, right? And so I kind of got into it there. I saw it as a way to promote my books at first. And then uh, eventually I got away from that idea and just it sort of became its own thing and actually got to be much bigger than the books in terms of, of impact. Eventually I started to interview people on there and review games and promote indie projects and Kickstarter projects. So it's, it's, it's kind of got become this behemoth for me. What was, for? let me put it this way, how did it like begin at the very start? Because the first 39 episodes, and yes, I checked, are just basically retrospectives of older games, and you don't start the interviews until after that. So was this just to look a, like a look back or just get the image of these games out there? Yeah, I think that, that's probably it, uh, Eric. That's, a, that's one of the problems I had in the book was, you know, you, put, you could describe a game, you could maybe show a screenshot on a blog, but sometimes it's just really hard to try to get across what was happening since you had no way to show the game. And pretty early on, I found that the video, that was one of the things I found when I was, actually the very first time I did a very first match at, I was sort of mesmerized when I uh, discovered I could just show the, like sort of the built-in demo of a Pool of Radiance and have that playing as the video and then talk about it. For me, that, that opened up a lot of exciting possibilities as, as a game critic uh, or uh, someone interested in, in that sort of thing that I could finally show it you know, maybe in the future there'd be, this is something I've toyed with as well, wouldn't it be even cooler if people could actually play the game in question, you know, as I'm <laughs> talking about it. Uh, I don't know what that would look like yet, but I, that's probably the next step. But, but anyway, just being able to show the game is already very exciting and, and definitely uh, opened up opportunities that weren't there when I was just in text format. So what opened the opportunities to switch to interviews, the first one being Sword of Fargal with Jeff McCord? Yeah, that was uh, interesting how that came about. I had been a fan of uh, Sword of Fargoal, and it, I think he at the time was toying with the idea of re-releasing that. Maybe it already done. I think it was in, in the works, uh, a new version of that for uh, iPhone, I guess, or smartphones. And I, th I don't remember if he suggested it or somebody suggested it, but uh, there was some kind of uh, software coming out that would let you record a Skype call video they had the audio for a while but then there was this this you could record the video streams going both ways <laughs> i thought man that would be pretty uh pretty cool if i could pull that off i hadn't really seen too many people do that at least in this little game community i was part of so jeff was kind of my guinea pig with that he was very patient you know it took a long time several uh, false starts and attempts to try to get the technology working and <laughs> i think i had to do it twice 
uh, for his time and didn't record properly when he was gracious enough to come back and do the whole thing again. Uh, so it was kind of a learning experience that way. But after that, you know, I was like, well, okay, uh, this seemed to work. And I got pretty lucky with some pretty high profile. Kind of looking back, it amazes me. You know, here's this guy with a YouTube video. You know, at the time, I might have had a couple hundred subscribers, you know, maybe. But even at that point, there, these uh, video game designers, so few people had approached them to get their stories and talk to them that they were, you know, more than happy, even eager to come onto this YouTube show and, and share their stories. So that's some pretty high-profile guests almost uh, from the beginning, uh, which uh, still amazes me. I don't know if I was trying to do something like Matt Chat today, <laughs> you know, I don't think I'd be nearly that successful. Because, like, looking over, like, some of the names you managed to pick up, like, Ralph Bear was, I think, your third interview. You got Chris Avalon, John Romero, Brian Fargo, and uh, plenty of other people that whose work I recognize, but, like, the names don't stick out. Mm-hmm. So did these people just kind of, like, fall in your lap, or did you actually, like, actively try to approach them? And how did you choose who you try to interview? Well, some of them, I would say some – Ralph Bear. He just—I guess you would say—he just kind of fell into my lap. That was just amazing for me. I, I think he had oh, just a website uh, with a contact button on it. <laughs> it's like the inventor of video games, and he's pretty much just anybody could just go knock on his door and talk to him. So that was—I uh, hadn't met him before, and I just met him through Skype. He's unfortunately passed on now. Uh, John Romero—he's a really interesting guy. I met him at GDC, the Game Developer Conference, who we were shooting that gameplay movie. And I, I'd interviewed him for that, and he's instead of like a lot of those people we interviewed for that, they came in, did the interview, and then they went on about their business. But John was uh, really interested in the whole uh, history thing. He's a big game historian himself. He loves uh, talking about game history, especially Apple II stuff. So we really kind of hit it off, uh, John, Bill, and I. And he actually we took us out to dinner and continued the conversation. So he kind of became a, a friend of mine. Uh, so I, I waited until I felt like I had some, you know, I didn't want to interview him when I was still trying to struggle with the technology. So I waited until I felt like I had developed a certain, I don't want to say expertise, but, you know, a certain, certain comfort level with the whole video editing thing. And then, uh, then he came on the show. And it's been some of my most popular videos to this day. Is there a reason why you, is it just ability to get them on the show that you focus on, like, older creators? No, I would say that's more my where I feel like I can contribute. Uh, I don't, I didn't have a Nintendo entertainment system growing up or <laughs> the Sega Genesis. So I've always been a PC gamer. It's kind of been, I guess, a, a blessing and a curse in some ways because some of these games I get all excited about, most people haven't ever heard of. Uh, but the people that did grow up with the computers instead of game consoles tend to gravitate towards the channel. But I don't like being in a position where I'm interviewing somebody. I've never played uh, his or her games. I don't really know <laughs> anything about them. I had kind of had to fake enthusiasm. You know, I'm not a very good actor, basically. So I try to find people that I genuinely care about their uh, their work. So I don't have to try to feign an enthusiasm for it. There is actually a, like another benefit to having these interviews, and I and I believe you mentioned some of it in one of the earlier episodes because. And I don't remember which one. I want to say it was the interviews with Arnold Hendrick on Darklands, where soon after the interview, he passed on. Hmm. I don't remember if that was the specific one, but I remember one of your early interviews, the creator had passed on, and you made the point that there is an importance behind this, that these are, like, no one has asked them, no one has gone on the record with the history. I think that might have been Ralph Bear. 
Uh-huh. Where is it Arnold Hendrick? I, I don't know. Because Ralph, no, Ralph there, what? he died more recently. I do remember mm. that happening. Actually, one of, the, one of the sad things was Daniel Lawrence of uh, Telengard. You know, I'd actually had him on. He, would, he had agreed to come on the show and do an interview. And then he passed away, you know, in the, before I could get to it. Uh, this is terrible. But yeah, this is, you know, and again, thinking about these other genres, bands and you know, great movie directors and, and all this novelists and whatnot. You know, looking back, wouldn't it have been great if we had more interviews with them? If we even had, if we knew anything about, say, Homer, <laughs> uh, people would just kill for that information. And yeah, they're not getting any younger, right? A lot of these folks are that start when they were in their teenage years, and they're still, I guess, maybe 40 or 50 or so. Uh, but anybody that started when they were 30 or 40, they're getting on up there. You know, and if they pass on without anybody ever interviewing them, it's just a lost opportunity. And I think people assume that, well, surely people have interviewed, you know, so-and-so, the designer of such-and-such. But, you know, it's not like those other industries. Not a lot of gamers care about the designers, can't even name very many of them. Uh, So there's not that sort of reverence, uh, respect for them. I think there will be eventually. And at that point, you know, they'll be saying, oh, it's... Well, hopefully they'll be saying, thank God for Matt Barton, you know. <laughs> uh, without him, we wouldn't have any of these insights. So I guess that's that's kind of what keeps me going, is that thinking about that future historian or, or video game fan that wants to hear from Arnold Hendrick. Uh, how do you exactly do you, like, go about the interviews? Like, what is the process of actually interviewing the designers? Uh, let me think about that. So I guess I generally start thinking about the... I get a list of the games they worked on, and hopefully I've played some of them and don't have to do much more research. But I try to learn as much as I can about the games. I see if there's any previous interviews with them. I look at magazine reviews of their games. It's it's always fun to talk to them about uh, some game review, something they worked on 10, 15 years ago. Maybe <laughs> you know, maybe maybe at the time it was really uh, had a big impact on them. But you know, with more time, they can be more reflective about it. Uh, so, yeah, I try to get as much information as I can together in this huge Evernote page. And then I, from there, try to distill that into some topics. I, I try to stay away from a real uh, formulaic, you know, for question number one, question number two, you know, sort of set up. And I guess that's part of my my strategies evolved over, you know, it, like when I started out with those Romero interviews, for example, you know, I'm not even in the video. You know, I hadn't worked out yet how to do both sides of the, of the video. So now I've tried to make it more like the name, suggest more of a chat. So if somebody comes on, I try to follow up, try to take it where they want it to go and focus more on listening to, to them than try to hear myself talk or put ideas in their head. You know, <laughs> A lot of people say that's what they like about the channel, but it's not just mad all the time. It's uh, I focus more. I let, I let the developer tell the story, and I try to stay out of it as much as possible. Do you, you think on your feet a lot like some new fact comes up and then you have to like Get and try and draw more information out of some new like thread that they had mentioned. Yeah, sometimes that happens. I I think that that's uh, something else that's evolved over time. So now I've since I've talked to so many other developers and designers, I know a lot more of the history. Uh, so I can uh, chime in, help people remember things, or uh, relate it to some other project. Uh, but yeah, that can you know it can always be. Uh, it's there's so much so many random factors as you probably know. You know, some guests, they, they just take a while to kind of come out of their shell or they get really nervous and you, know, you got to try to spend some time 
uh, breaking the ice, uh, so to speak. But I'm trying to think. I don't know if I've ever been just caught flat-footed with a. <laughs> uh, usually, I could. I've done enough research. I can. I can keep things going. But that's probably why I get so anxious about that happening. That I do way more research and prep than I really need to. Uh, so by the time I sit down with them, I'm so over prepped uh, that fortunately hasn't ever happened to me. Within your preparation, do you try and like get them to hit all the major points, or does that just happen naturally? Or are there points where you have to? bring up and remind them of something to try and draw out more information that way or a certain story that way. Yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of the art of it, right? It's, it can be difficult to, uh, you sort of have an idea of what you'd like them to talk about and they just can't seem to get there. <laughs> You're like, come on, uh, you know, you, you told a story, but you said it, you, you told it in a very robotic like way. And I, I wish they sometimes you could just sort of be there and, Say, come on, you know, you have a shot of vodka or something and tell that that story again. But yeah, you just kind of have to, it's just kind of the reality, right? Sometimes it's just not going to be anything really all that uh, engaging, but you did the best you could on that day. I I remember uh, interviewing, you uh, you ever play a game called Planetfall or old Infocom? I've tried. (laughs) I died really quickly. (laughs) Uh, The same guy, Steve Moretzky, he also did one called... uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Also died really quickly in that one. Yeah, those are pretty difficult games. But, but anyway, the, the humor level in those games is just, I mean, you, you're playing them and you're just laughing so hard, you know, the whole time. And I was, I kept thinking, oh, it's going to be great when I interview him. But he showed up and he was, first thing he said was, I'm extremely hungover. <laughs> <laughs> it was like this really dry and, uh, whew, you know. <laughs> I wish that we'd have had another day. Came back the next day, it might have been a totally different, different experience. But you win some, you lose some, I guess. How long do your interviews go on for? Do them in one session, or do you like have to break it up? Because some of these, there are like many videos for each creator. I usually just do them in one session. You know, about an hour, about an hour and a half. Uh, usually, energy levels start to flag about an hour in. Some people can just go on forever, and they. I actually get through all my topics and they're like, oh, come on. Don't you have anything else to ask? And, well, what about you? What do we, what would you Do like? you have anything else to say? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's happened when somebody will say, well, I've got half an hour. So you kind of prep about half an hour's worth of uh, questions, right? Mm-hmm. And then when they show up, they're like, well, whatever got canceled. So I've got all day. And you're just kind of like, oh, man, I, I wish I had, you know, came up with some more questions. When will I have this opportunity again, you know? But. Yeah, I find this happens often is like whenever I like come up with questions and things I want to ask and you ask the first questions and it says, oh, there goes half the page of questions with that answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that happened to me recently with uh, I interviewed, uh, I haven't put him up yet, but uh, Volker uh, Wurdick, the father of the settlers. And it was like that he had seen my, it's like he could see my question sheet. And he's like, well, he like the first I asked him one question, and he was basically hitting each of those questions on my thing. <laughs> I didn't even need to be there. Yeah, that seems to happen to me a lot. I, I don't know if it's basically I break up a single question into too many parts or, or what. But yeah, I get that complaint sometimes. I'll say, well, that was actually two questions, or that was three questions. <laughs> uh, sometimes I just uh, – I, I like to get it to a point where I could just mention a word, you know, just say – Planet fall. <laughs> <laughs> and, and get and them just going. Let them off going into the yeah. 
you sort of imagine yourself as a psychoanalyst or something. You're just the guy with the the notepad, sort of suggesting, sort of hinting at topics, and let let them go where they will. Try and like reveal like a mind, like their their mind behind it, not just the like the, the facts of the story, but their own mental space. Exactly. You know, and you can tell a big difference too. You probably noticed this when when you talk to somebody that's been interviewed a whole bunch of times, and they, they sort of have their spiel. And it's very hard sometimes to get them off of that spiel. I mean, I've actually interviewed people, and I've listened to other interviews, and they pretty much said this, like, word for word, the same thing. And so, that's, so that's one reason. I, I kind of like to interview the people that haven't been interviewed so many times. You know, instead of talking to the lead designer, if you can talk to some, you know, assistant designer or some graphics guy or maybe even the some of my best interviews I thought were uh, had the, some of the music people. Like the music composers, uh, George Sanger, uh, the fat man, really stands out. Uh, just fantastic interview. All kinds of insights into the industry that uh, you probably would think, well, he's just a music guy, but he's he's got his finger on the pulse. Yeah, I've heard, I've like, uh, I've interviewed people who are like, I guess you could say like better radio trained, as it were, for like speaking, but I've never actually someone who's gotten to that point where they've given this so many times because. I don't focus with people who would have been interviewed that many times. It's it's a sort of much narrower focus for our, for our podcast. Yeah, usually people like that. It's I don't know if they've been interviewed by say somebody interested in their history. You know, it's probably more like investors. They got to stay on message and they don't want to make any points that might somehow impact the doc value. I guess they have these. Also, it's about their recent stuff rather than the stuff from way long ago. All this non-disclosure agreements and all that. I mean, that's another reason why I, I don't, you know, I'd rather just talk about some old game that's it's been there. Uh, <laughs> there's Nobody's worried about <laughs> non-disclosure agreements anymore. Uh, so you just get the, you get the full story, no, uh, no BS. You know, I've tried interviewing some, some people about newer products and uh, they'll just keep saying, well, I can't talk about that or, you know, can't talk about that. And then after the interview, they'll ask me to, to you know, to remove questions I answered and all this. And it, it, just, it just gets me so aggravated. I, I just would rather not deal with it. You bring that up and it's actually an interesting phenomenon because your focus is way older than I don't, I don't even think like many of these companies don't even exist anymore that they're, that they're non-disclosure or even if they had to sign them back in the day. But it was a, a recent Kotaku article that actually brought up the fact that he that the the writer has done interviews where people were afraid to talk about games they had done 10 or 15 years ago because of non-disclosure agreements even if the company didn't exist anymore or it was bought out or and dissolved and it just simply because of the litigation force that would be behind it so that that seems like a really hampering like institutional knowledge being spread around yeah, it's it's a problem. I, I remember uh, John Smedley of uh, Sony. At the time, he was, uh, I think, president of Sony Online Entertainment. And we were interviewing him for that gameplay movie, and he had a handler there. And, uh, you know, John Smedley had the power. So when the handler would say, uh, you know, I don't think you should answer that question, <laughs> Smedley just told him to shut up. <laughs> and he went ahead and answered the question. I mean, he, he had that kind of, uh, no, nobody's going to fire him, you know. Uh, but yeah, imagine how in intimidated that would have been for you know anybody lower on the organizational chart, so to speak. So I, you know, I find a lot of uh, game people they're sort of surrounded by all this legalese. You know, you can see that in those huge uh, user terms agreement or what they call those things, NOLAs and 
you know, all this kind of stuff. But they don't really have a very sophisticated understanding of, of the law and copyright. So they tend to err on the side of uh, covering their butt, <laughs> uh, which definitely makes things uh, frustrating. I don't know why anybody thought it'd be a great idea to have so many lawyers involved in, in the games industry, but I think it's been bad. We were talking earlier about having, of like trying to get the, the designer's perspective and beyond just the simple facts of the story. There have been in cases where you, over time, you've managed to get people who have worked on the same game and you get the same story but like completely different interpretations of the facts as it were like uh the bard's tale i remember was like it was between was uh brian fargo and i want to say rebecca heineman yeah it must have they been becky like, burger heineman yeah where they had completely different interpretations on like what happened surrounding that game like the later installments of that game yeah, you find that that quite often. There's a lot of drama, and people have different takes on it. Uh, with that one, I, I would love to get the chance, if I ever get the chance, I'd love to talk to Michael Cranford about that, because uh, I've heard sort of different spins of what happened, that whole hostage, you know, that he took the, the disc hostage at one point, is, was what I've been told. <laughs> you know, and then you hear all these other people will say, you know, well, don't put this in the interview, but, you know, let me tell you what happened. You know, there's, there's a lot of that stuff going on, but. I don't know. I guess that's the problem for any historian or journalist, right? You're never going to get the what really happened. You just get different takes, kind of a Rashomon like a scenario, right? You see that with uh, Ralph Bear and Nolan Bushnell too, and the te- and the Tetris guys. If you want to go into that, to what oh. happened to Tetris? It wasn't it wasn't that that that's worthy of a movie? I know there's already been sort of a BBC thing, but I think it'd make a great action flick. <laughs> But uh, speaking on this sort of thing, like, how far do you push a subject on, like, any given point or issue that may be contentious? I don't really. That's not really my style. I'm not hardball or or whatever. Now, usually if somebody just says they don't want to talk about something, I'm, I'm fine with that. I kind of that way. I don't want people to be reluctant to come on the show because they think I'm going to uh, try to, you know, keep coming back to something or work them into a corner or something. It's already hard enough to get guests. You know, I don't want to make it harder. I also don't mean, like, uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to, th- there's also, like, another way to think of it. Like, like you had, like, uh, what was his, uh, Scott Miller, like, like, the mind behind Duke Nukem. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't fully remember because I, I watched that interview, like, like, when it came out. So that was years ago. But how would you, like, go along, like, like the... I guess, like the representational issues with Duke Nukem, or would you bring that up and get his side of it? Because that is, that is content. It may not be like a industry contention, but it is like contentious among the, the audience that this was presented to. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't know if I remember everything about that. As, as I recall, though, with Scott, he, he didn't seem very reluctant to talk about things. I'm trying to think more. Could you sort of, uh, what was the, the thing about Duke Nukem you wanted to? talk about well it's because it's basically duke nuke like especially duke nukem 3d in particular and like it's the contentions of sexism of the character and the game in general oh yeah i don't and, even remember what he <laughs> what he might well, what just, he said about it what was he uh, yeah well not specifically that but like my, my question to you is like how do you like bring that up because that is a sensitive topic oh i would probably say you know what do you think about these uh the sort of allegation that the game was sexist or you know, what do you think? Do you think that's fair, that criticism? Uh, I don't ask them. If, I try not to be make it sound like I'm accusing them of something. 
from uh, your perspective, like how has the your interviews changed over the six years you've been doing it? I guess uh, how, probably I would say they've become less uh, f- less formal over time. Definitely a lot more comfortable. I definitely become Cer- a lot more comfortable with it. Certainly longer. Yeah, certainly longer. Back when I was doing like John Romero, I think it was we were limited to ten minutes <laughs> for slice. So I talked to him for was, like thirty minutes and thought it was a big deal. Was that still when YouTube had that restriction? Oh yeah, they had that restriction for a long time, and apparently, if you were, they had this YouTube partnership program where you could become, if you're like an official YouTube partner, then you could go longer. And I remember I really hurt my feelings. I applied for that, and they turned me down. And I just thought, wow, that's kind of a jerk move. Thank you, YouTube. You know, and of course, I don't think any human actually made the decision. But, uh, yeah, fortunately, uh, we can go as long as we want to now. So it's just a matter of the, the energy levels. And I kind of like the – at first I thought it was a bad thing that I couldn't actually fly there and have a camera crew and, you know, sit up in a studio and all that. Uh, but I've actually kind of changed my mind on that. I think the Skype, the fact that they can just do this from their laptop – or even their phone, and it's a very sort of uh, comfortable. They they can do it at home or in their office. Uh, I think that gives you a little bit more of an intimate uh, perspective into their lives. You get very used to seeing their office walls and what's on them, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, you can. It's always fun when somebody uh, hasn't really thought about what's in the background. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> trash and junk everywhere, but that's their real existence. It's authentic, so I like that. How do you put like the interviews together? Because the early ones were certainly edited for time and content. I remember in the Chris Avalon interviews, you actually had like title cards when you switched topics, because you were certainly limit because it was like three ten minute sections and what seemed like a longer interview. Yeah. So how did like the editing process change over the years, especially when you were allowed more time? Yes, I'm trying to think about this. So I don't know if this, when I started off, I was just using that. Microsoft Movie Maker, and then eventually I got Sony Vegas. So that was a pretty big shift in terms of editing there. Uh, but I've definitely experimented. I'm always experimenting with things. You know, it gets kind of stale if I I don't, I don't ever want to just do the same old thing over and over. So I'm always experimenting with uh, different kinds of transitions. See, it's nice when I can find more footage to put into the game. I mean, <laughs> a footage from the game or just some kind of relevant footage is cool. I don't know if you've run into this with what you do, but I'm always asking these designers. Always, I don't put this in the video, but I'll ask them, do you, know, do you have old pictures or photographs, maybe even video footage from, you know, back in the day? And it's it's very few ever do. You know, maybe like, I remember John Romero, he's the only one that had like video footage archives of like the days of id. Uh, for a lot of these people, they don't even have a single photograph of the studio that they worked in, you know, for 10, 20 years. And so it's it's mm-hmm. a big, big challenge to try to find some kind. You don't want to just show the talking heads the whole time. I've been trying to get inspiration lately. I've been watching some of these popular videos on YouTube, like the the science guys and the uh, school of life. And, you know, they got these sort of cutout animations and things. Uh, I thought that could be kind of a fun, I don't know how how feasible that something like that would be, but... Yeah, that, that's been a struggle for me from the beginning is, you know, how do you keep this, how do you find interesting visuals uh, to keep this moving along? Because uh, not everybody has the, the patience to sit and uh, watch <laughs> talking heads or even listen to that 
uh, you know, I feel like I need to have something exciting to break it up. It's easier now with audio for like, there's no visual for like our little discussion, but you exactly. can take us on the go. But with video, you need like, why keep that tab open if just the audio is necessary? Yeah, lately I've been kind of experimenting with uh, breaking up the interviews and having little segments in between. So instead of just having the gameplay footage uh, in the background, you know, or the voices in the background be showing the gameplay footage, you know, to, tr to try to find pivotal moments from the gameplay and stop the interview for like 20 seconds and show that and then come back to it. Uh, I think that's a pretty, I kind of like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a professionally and, uh, trained video editor, so you just kind of have to keep <laughs> experimenting until you find something that sticks, I guess. Yeah, and I, I noticed some like the mixing stuff you did with uh, Jim Sachs on your Defender of the Crown interview, how you like mixed the music for, that was playing in the background with while he was talking about the mm -hmm. development of the game. Yeah, I like the, the, the background music. Uh, it's so effective, right, when you want to sort of get an emotion, mm -hmm. emotional response. But I, a lot of people would say, you know, don't I can't hear the audio. I mean, one thing about Matt Chat's audience is a lot of people that are from uh, other countries where English is not their native language. Uh, mm -hmm. So they would complain a lot. You know, they'd say, I, I can't, you know, <laughs> don't do anything that's going to make the audio harder to hear because I'm already trying to translate it anyway. Uh, so I kind of went with them, I guess. On that, I could put some music in interludes and things. Do you find like a big part of your audience is from yeah, overseas? A pretty good chunk, at least. Uh, I don't know if they're how large of a segment that is, or if they're just a very vocal segment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of uh, people from Germany and Russia, a lot of uh, Eastern European countries, uh, quite a few Spanish Which speakers were... uh, from South America. All historically PC-heavy regions. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of these other countries, Doom, uh, you, know, I, you know, had a, obviously had a huge impact in the U.S., of course, but, you know, it really seems to almost have a, almost a religious, <laughs> you know, dimension in some of these other countries. I mean, you go to South America and start talking about Doom and people just, you know, John Romero and uh, John Carmack are stars to them, you know. Now that you, like, mention it, it, it does make more sense that with your particular focus that on like older games of the various PCs that they would reach into the other countries in a larger aspect because because like of the uh, I guess like the economic barriers behind it, buying a console or even having one shipped outside of certain that like Nintendo and Sega they wouldn't really ship outside certain regions because they weren't economically feasible but PCs were almost universal so it, I guess it makes sense because like Yes, we'll get like people outside the U U.S., England, Australia, English-speaking trifecta, but it's like one or two, and you wonder, are these like accidental downloads or outliers? But I guess with you, that makes a little more yeah, I sense. I think you're probably on to something there. There's definitely, I'm sure there must have been. Yeah, I would, the more I think about it, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what you're saying there. That, that, that does make a lot of sense, because some of these people would have still been using DOS computers. You know, long after, I guess, uh, people in the U.S. have moved on. I, I definitely see that a lot with the Commodore 64 and the Commodore Amiga and Atari ST. You brought up Eastern Europe, and yeah, that's what flooded in after the, the curtain fell. Yeah, so they're still, I mean, those aren't old classics so much, <laughs> you know, for them, these like obsolete. I mean, they might have been playing them, you know, 10 years after they were gone from uh, the U.S. So yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty, I think you're right about that. And 
is this mostly focused like on like American creators? Because I I recall once you had a South American South American creator. He, oh, he yeah, made Augusta scratches. Cordes. Thank you, because I'm not. I don't think I pronounced. I suck at pronunciations. Oh my god. I'm pretty sure it's August Augustine Augustine yeah. Augustine. I don't know. <laughs> but, but as far, as far as I can remember, that's like the one non-American creator that I well the or British creator because yes you did you did uh you did have Lord British on recent more recently. I don't know. I've had I've had a few of uh, Richard Bartle. I think he's somewhere in the UK. I've had some Germans on. Of course, uh, who was the had some uh, people from West Africa on. Really? Yeah, the Orion Dark Legacy folks. I think yeah. The, I hope not. I hope I got the country right. Somewhere in Africa. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know any other languages than English, so I don't have a translator or anything. So if they, oh, the settlers guy, he's from uh, Germany. So there has been a few people from other countries. But if they don't, if they, if they don't know English, it's kind of a non-starter. You mentioned managing to interview contemporary indie creators and augustin Cor- i am so sorry i can't <laughs> say your name properly but and him and you you got dave gilbert on a few years ago do you feel like there's like a, a difference in like the temperament in those type of interviews like they're less history and more like current events for lack of a better term yeah i guess that's a, that's a good question i i, I find the uh... Usually the indie folks have a lot in common with the with the older developers, and veterans, right? Because they're uh, due to technological and financial constraints. They're, they're kind of where those guys were back in the the eighties or so, right? Might even be doing similar games. A lot of them mm-hmm. are heavily influenced. Maybe they played those Sierra Adventure games or the Lucasfilm games, and they they want to do something like that. It's new, but it's retro style, so it's kind of interesting. Not talking to those, but uh, yeah, you know, and plus the fact that they're indie is nice because they don't, again, kind of getting back to that topic about the non-disclosure agreements and, <laughs> you know, a lot of those guys, they're not worried about getting fired or anything like that. So uh, you don't have to worry about the them asking me to cut out a big chunk of the interview and, and things of that sort. But they're more laid back, I guess you could say. I mean, you know, usually an indie's got something to say, some kind of. Uh, manifesto or whatever uh, they want to talk about, get the message out. So, you know, I like talking to those guys. It, it's about as much fun. I don't know who I like better. Those are the, are the veterans, you know, it's different kinds of uh, interest, I suppose, but they're both fascinating. Way back at the beginning of this interview, you brought up the creator of Pitfall and how to him it was just a product and you felt like you wanted to get to know the band, which sort of like belies yeah. an artistic interest. How has that come along over the years and the people you've talked to? It's just it really varies from person to person. I, you know, I still occasionally find people that just was a business. You know, they <laughs> they they didn't care. They don't. They're surprised anybody cares about it, and they've got no sort of attachment. Now, that's another thing about that I think is regrettable about modern games. So the, the later you go, the bigger the team sizes get, and the less sort of personal involvement people have in it and so they're just a cog in a wheel you know just one of many many people that worked on the game so they don't have nearly as a, a direct connection to it than say i guess what's so uh perplexing about 
David Crane is, I mean, he is kind of a one man band, you know, back, you know, the pitfall, he coded it himself, designed it, came up with the idea of all that had, he was one of the founders of the company. So he was kind of intimately involved with every aspect of that project. And, and to hear him say, well, it's just a product. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> really? I, I just, uh, I can't get behind that. Uh, but there's definitely other design. I mean, Richard Garriott, Lord British comes to mind. Of course, uh, John Romero, so many others. Uh, I'm trying to think of a couple other ones, but uh, uh, they're a lot more passionate about what they've done. They they see the value in it. They preserved a lot of the history. Uh, they want to preserve the history. I, th I guess you can sort of tell, and you might have seen this too. You talk to people and you say, uh, you know what games are you playing, or, or something like that. And every now and then you'll you talk to a designer that says, "I don't really like games. <laughs> uh, this is just a job." And I, I tend to think those people probably just got lucky because uh, they they don't really seem to get it. Whereas you talk to other people, and they you can really tell this is their passion. Like Chris Avalon. I mean, come on. I mean, could you imagine him not? I mean, if he said that he didn't play games or he didn't care about games. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd just fall over and die on the spot. I've actually scrolled up. You had him on like three times for a separate interview. Yeah, he's a big fan of the show. And of course, uh, my audience is a big fan of his stuff. So it works out pretty well. How do you feel like getting people on? Because not, not many, but you had like several people on again to like, I guess you could say up, like an update to the interview because they've done more things. So you have more things to ask about. Yeah, I like to do that. It's always nice when you've uh, interviewed them before because you've, you've got some kind of common ground at that point and you get to know them a little better. I think about it if you watch, uh, I like to uh, think of myself as kind of the, well, I don't know if I go that far, but I like to watch some of the older David Letterman shows where he's interviewing people. And you notice that uh, he'll bring a guest on sometimes, many, many times, and you can see the sort of this relation, this, I don't, I guess you'd say relationship or friendship sort of evolve and it becomes, really entertaining just to watch him interact uh, with those guests. And I would love to get Matt Chat to that point uh, where there would be certain like favorite guests uh, that people wouldn't mind seeing again. So it'd be less like, let's talk about your history and more just like, it's been a while since we've heard from, uh, you know, Becky Heineman. Let's <laughs> she's back uh, to talk. And, you know, we could just talk about what's stuff that's going on in the, in the games industry. I really wanted the idea Somebody had proposed the idea of a sort of round table thing so I could get two or three RPG designers on and get some different takes. Just kind of sit back and get them talking about a topic and uh, hear a bunch of different perspectives. But unfortunately, that's been really hard to pull off. Finding a time when everybody can get on, it's, that's a huge hurdle. I mean, all these different time zones. and whew. It's why I switched to an interview format because I realized it is so much easier to schedule one person than it is to schedule four. Yeah, it's a miracle. I don't think people really appreciate, you know, when they when they hear a roundtable and like how much work went on to get these, not just one, but like what you said four. I mean, my God, that's like the the limit. Five people total, myself and four others, is the limit of what I'm willing to do. And even that is, it generally becomes way too much. Just to listen to, let oh, alone yeah. set up. And that's the sad part about doing something. I'm sure you run into this all the time. Oh, you know, you you have such an easy job. I mean, you make these little 20 minute videos, and that's just 20 minutes. You know, <laughs> you expect a dollar for that or whatever. <laughs> and you just wish those people could actually see what it's 
behind the scenes and all the work that has to go into making anything like that because it you don't see all that right you just see the, the you you listen to the podcast and you, you just kind of assume well i just hit record and that was it no prep That's no uh, no editing no uh <laughs> yeah i found like an hour's podcast for me is about four to five hours work wow. total i forget last when i i gotten a little more efficient over over I time only... with it but yeah i've spent you know and sometimes i've just wanted to scream at people that <laughs> try to make out like a, I, I remember several times I'll be trying to, you know, some, some somebody will mention a game they worked on, you know, 10 years ago, uh, some Intellivision game or whatever. They're like, okay, I want to show a clip from that game. So you got to find the emulator if the thing even exists. And some of these systems, the emulation scene is really not there. And you might spend hours just trying to get that emulator to work, uh, much less find the, the game. And then sometimes it's almost impossible to actually get your screen recording software to record the thing. And, uh, you know, the worst is when somebody mentions, oh, well, you know, uh, you remember this thing that happens in this game? And they talk about the scene from a game for a while. And you're like, okay, man, I got to show that scene. Uh, (laughs) So that might be, you know, two or three, maybe four or five hours into the game. Yeah, I can just imagine because you're actually looking for video and that editing takes longer to render. I can, like, my three to five hours is almost nothing compared yeah, to that. It can, it can be, it can be a challenge. So, uh, but anyway, I have a, it does make you appreciate the things that you find online when you, you see a game clip, and you can appreciate the uh, the time and skill it took to properly render that footage, to collect it and to render it. This is what you know. The other reason why I do when I, my videos, I always release them uh, with the Creative Commons licensing. So hopefully, anybody if they see a clip that they want to use for my video. Uh, they can do that without having to worry about getting my permission. Or re-get it themselves. Exactly. Have you seen like any of the interview type stuff that other people's done? Like Double Fine has been doing Let's Plays with the creators of some of the games and having them like live comment while one of their designers is playing it. You have Tim Schafer actually having them comment on the game. The one I saw was uh, Beyond Good and Evil that they had Michael Ansel on to like talk about the various scenes that were being played out in front of him. Have you ever thought of like trying to do that with some of these creators? Yeah, I have. I mean, I don't have the resources they <laughs> they have. I guess it'd be so much easier <laughs> if I was based in San Francisco, you know. I think I'd just go over to the, to the mm-hmm. studio and set something up. But yeah, that that would be a fun idea. I, I would settle right now. I'd be happy if there was just an easy way that when I'm interviewing somebody, I could show them a clip, you know, and, and that we could talk about the same clip together. Uh, you know, even that would be a step forward, but. That may be a bit too much preparation. Yeah, and you, you kind of wonder, worry about you don't want to get too create too big of a distraction and break up whatever kind of a rapport you've established trying to fiddle around with something. I mean, that, that, that'll ruin any kind of interview when you have some big technical thing pop up in the middle of it and you totally lose your flow. Well, what about like the intros and outros you do surrounding the interviews? Well, that was a lot of fun. The one that I've got now with the Amiga Boing Ball, I made that in... Uh, uh, what was it, Blender? It was just a kind of a challenge I set for myself. I had this vision of that Boing Ball with the game clips embedded in it. I thought, man, that would be really cool if I could figure out how to do that. It, it kind of became an almost a little meta game for me. Like, how do you do? How would you do that? You know, it, it sounds like it'd be possible. So I actually learned enough about Blender to, to make that thing. And <laughs> 
after that, I'm like, okay, I'm never doing that again. So I hope you guys, I hope you guys like this intro because it's we'll be looking at this one for quite a while. But yeah, I went through a couple of different variations of intros. I, I, I figured out people don't really want a long intro. You know, there's something quick. You just want a little bit of uh, consistency and then get it over with and get into the interview, right? And the, the, but I've noticed the outros have gotten like longer and longer as you <laughs> <Some indulgent. laughs> Well, you know, it occurred to me if somebody it's it's the end of the thing. If if somebody just wants to watch the review or they just want to watch the interview, well, they can just stop it, right? You know, mm-hmm. they they can stop it. So there's no reason why I should just try to make it as brief as possible. You know, you want to get to the intro should be short, but you know, the outro, who cares? If they get tired or they don't like it, they can just stop at any time. And the people that enjoy it, you know, those, they uh, like to see all that stuff. So I think that's one of the nice things about YouTube. You can do stuff like that and nobody's – somebody might get a, try to be upset about it, but, I mean, it's really kind of dumb because all, all they have to do is <laughs> hit the stop button. So, yeah, I have a little fun with those. Two things that have sort of become your signature, the beer drinking <laughs> and the closing quote you give to each video. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know where that, how that evolved. <laughs> I just thought to be, he was feeling kind of wacky one day and tried it out. And uh, people said, oh, that's, that's pretty fun. But I have found uh, people come to expect things. And I, you know, I watched a lot of uh, quirky shows growing up. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of get, it's a sort of weird how you can get so uh, enamored with something kind of goofy about a show, but it, you know, if you do something enough, if you kind of make it a, what's the word there? No, not, not like a catchphrase, but a, you know, if there's like a little thing you do that's kind of quirky, uh, people will come to expect that and look forward to it. I, I remember uh, the, the Xena, the Warrior Princess show. You ever watch that, Xena? Yeah. So you know, at the the end credits, always put in a funny credit. You know, so and so wasn't harmed during the making of the episode. It's just kind of a little <laughs> silly thing, but uh, the fans love that kind of stuff. And so I tried to think about, okay, I guess I could do quotes. We could try different ales. You, you try to find things that aren't too repetitive or monotonous, but something you could do over and over again, so you can provide some consistency. Because uh, people like to think maybe maybe it's a psychological thing, you know, but they're they're, they're looking forward to it. Maybe you know the interview, and then thinking, okay, I, I want to see what kind of ale he's got this time. I, I want to hear the quote. Uh, I want to hear the sound sample <laughs> he puts in at the end of the credits. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's people out there, they and they get upset if I forget to do something. <laughs> uh, they, I mean, they it ruins their day. Like, what? Matt, where the you, you didn't put a sound clip at the end of your credits? You know what the hell? <laughs> No ale of the week, you know. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of an inside thing. It, it's something that regular Matt Chat viewers, they can recognize that and appreciate that. And uh, it sets them apart from just a casual viewer who just watches the one video and says, you know, what what the hell is this drinking horn thing all about? You know, they're, they're obviously not true Matt Chatters. Do you get a lot of feedback from your audiences? I get a lot of feedback, yeah. They talk about the stuff that they comes up in the interviews or the they recommend a lot of the games that I have on the show. Also have a Google Hangout that I try to do once a month, and a lot of them will tune into that and tell me about all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I'd say it's, it's definitely a big. You know, I would uh, have given this up a long time ago if I didn't have uh, friends. If I hadn't made any friends through it and had people to 
uh, they were just as passionate as I was to talk to about it. What is the ultimate goal of these videos? Is it just something that you continue to enjoy doing, or do you feel there is something good you're bringing into the world with them? The ultimate goal. Uh, <laughs> is there an ultimate goal? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. You know, some some people ask me like, "Well, why do you do this?" And I mean, uh, it's ha- habit, I guess. Uh, you get to a point, and you're like, I, I I feel weird. You know, sometimes you take a week off go on vacation or something and you're like i i feel kind of funny about not making a match at this week it's you know, it's like all is not right it, with the world somehow why do you do it <laughs> because it's what i do yeah, it's just it's what you do right you know if you do something what is that book about he says you do something for ten thousand hours and you uh it takes ten thousand hours to really get good at something i i wonder how many hours <laughs> you know i'm up to maybe i'm getting close to actually being uh, good at this well if you add in all the behind the scenes hours possibly yeah but you know in, in all seriousness uh again i i write books about video game history i'm, I'm not the only one uh, hopefully somebody at some point will be will find this material useful uh, for their projects and, you know and this is kind of a way to kind of my larger goal i guess is to uh, rescue games from the bad reputation they suffer in society right i always thought maybe people wouldn't be so harsh about games, if if they could really see how smart these people are, you know how bro- there was a face to put. Yeah, to Yeah, there's it. a face to put to it. You know that that makes a lot of difference. I think. With all that, I have just the fluff question left. What is your favorite color? <laughs> so close. What is your favorite video game of all time? Ah, uh, the favorite video game of all time. What is my favorite video game of all time? I I kind of go back and forth with this question. Uh, just in terms of hours spent playing a game, it would probably be Civilization V. Uh, either that, or I played a lot of World of Warcraft as well, but I kind of have a love-hate relationship with that game. <laughs> uh, so I feel kind of weird saying it's my favorite. Then you got sort of the game that had the most impact. You know, I remember playing uh, Pool of Radiance back in the day, and that was a very formative experience. I kind of equate that to like a rock and roll lover first time they heard uh, a Led Zeppelin album, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was sort of my Led Zeppelin experience is playing uh, Pool of Radiance and, of course, Baldur's Gate. Uh, so those are all great games. And there's always going to be a special place uh, for uh, Secret of Monkey Island. The Zork series, you know. Sounds like a list right there. Yeah, well, it's like asking a book lover, you know, what's your favorite <laughs> novel? <laughs> Or the, yeah. What if you could only play one video game for the rest of your life? Well, what would it? <laughs> no, no, that's a different question because suddenly different considerations come in. People start looking for long games because this has got to last. <laughs> yeah, well, what's your favorite game, Eric? Uh, 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 I'm asking the questions here. I have turned the tables on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on and putting up with me and my poor uncultured interview techniques. Oh, it's great. What are you talking about? It's nice of you to say that. So where can everyone find you and your work? Uh, I guess probably just go to YouTube. If you look for Matt Chat on Google, you'll find it easily enough. It's kind of a, a weird URL. You can go to mattchat.us. Maybe try that. That's a pretty good place. Probably should update this stuff. You know, I, I had this 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 ambitious vision of like, oh, I'm gonna have this website and I'm gonna blog and I'm gonna have uh, reviews and podcasts and 
Okay, yeah. It's all I can do to make the Matt Chat show. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> you guys, uh, just just subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's probably it. YouTube.com slash BlackLily8. I wish it was easier to uh, to spell that. But... And your Patreon? Yeah, what is that Patreon link? Yeah, Patreon.com slash BlackLily8. I guess you enjoy his work, you can support us there. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Tell us what you like. Tell us how we can improve. We'd much appreciate it. And if you like this podcast and all the other work we do at Critical Distance, you can take a look at our Patreon. And if you can, support us there at patreon.com slash crit distance. Thank you, Matt, again for coming on. It's been a blast. Thank you, Eric, and good luck with your fundraising and your outreach program. <laughs>